0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Leukaemia Chatters. My name is Charlotte, I'm Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukaemia Care. Today, I chatted to Karina Patterson. Karina was diagnosed with hairy cell leukaemia in 2017. We chatted about how she came to be involved in our buddy scheme, giving people the support she wishes she had earlier in her cancer journey. Thanks for joining us, Karina.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's lovely to have you. Um, so, with Volunteering Week recently gone past, we've um, invited Karina to talk a bit about some of the volunteering that she does for us. But before we get into that, I thought it might be nice to start Karina with just a quick chat about um, your diagnosis and how you came to be diagnosed with a type of leukemia. So, um, in terms of sort of when you first noticed signs and symptoms of, of your leukemia, how did how did that happen over time?
1: Oh wow! Well. <laughs> It's that's quite a hard question, because with hindsight, I think I probably first noticed the symptoms going back to 2011, 2012. And I was diagnosed in 2017. When I think back to when the fatigue actually really sort of started setting in and affecting my life and having three hour naps on Saturday afternoons and things. But I guess the symptoms really snowballed in the year maybe two years before I was diagnosed. So for example, a year before I was diagnosed, I went to the GP to ask them to test me for early onset dementia. The reason being that I was forgetting the simplest of words. So I'd be sat maybe on the sofa and my other half would be sat near the window and I would, I'd be feeling a draft and I'd want him to shut the window and I'd say, oh, would you mind shutting the, And then I couldn't remember the word for window. I mean, just the simplest of things. And because that was happening quite frequently, it began to really scare me. So I went to the GP and said, would you mind checking me out because my grandmother had 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 dementia? And their response was simply, are are you working hard? You know, are you tired from work? And, And of course, I was tired from work because actually I was fatigued with everything, but it wasn't actually because of work. And I said, well, yes, I am working hard. And they said, are you working long hours? And and of course, I was working long hours because I was having to make up for the fact that I was slowing down. So they just said, oh, it, it, it'll it just be work. You know, you don't need to worry about anything. And so that was, that was the first symptom, I guess, that I reported to a doctor that was shortly followed after by me asking them why I, I was getting dizzy all the time. I'd have a period nearly every morning of two, three hours where I'd have really bad dizziness. And I'd almost fall down the stairs at work every morning without fail. And I'd feel physically sick with it. I mean, I'd be sat at my desk just thinking I'm going to throw up any minute. And I never did, but I would feel it. And again, it was too vague. They just couldn't, they, they said, oh, well, may, maybe keep a diary of it. and But it could be one of any number of things. And, and so they sort of made me feel in a way as if I was latching onto something that had no significance and of course in hindsight it had huge significance but because of that I just I just learned to adapt to it I just thought to myself well well, maybe I've got something like low blood pressure maybe I just need to eat crisps every morning to regulate my salt (laughs) intake just ridiculous (laughs) ridiculous mad things but that's what that's what I did I just I just built the symptoms into my into my life until they until they almost weren't symptoms anymore to me they just became part of my normal everyday routine and being.
0: Yeah I think what you say about hindsight is something we hear absolutely all the time is that uh, once you look back you can put it all together but it sounds as if you didn't necessarily connect all these things that were happening together and in, into one thing for quite some time is that right?
1: Yeah not at all so those those two symptoms I just mentioned were sort of the May June of the year before I was diagnosed and then in the September, I just happened to have a routine set of blood tests done, which all came back slightly skewed. And then I started on this path of sort of up until Christmas of having blood tests every few weeks. And But different GPs were looking at them and saying to me, oh, well, may, maybe you've just had an infection and maybe that's why that's higher or maybe that's why that's lower. And, and then, of course, I came down with my, my annual um, lot of chest infections because for the Years preceding my diagnosis I was probably having two chest infections a year again I didn't really think anything of it I'd I'd end up going to the GP probably on week 10 of a chest infection because at the time on television the NHS was saying oh if you've had a cough for eight weeks or more then you should go to the doctor so I'd wait until week 10 and then I'd go and they'd say oh yeah but these things often last about 12 weeks or so so if it's not gone in, in another two weeks then come back and we'll give you some antibiotics <laughs> So that was happening for a few years. But again, I didn't, I, I didn't join the dots up and the doctors didn't join the dots up at all. Even though my first adverse blood test results were in this September, I didn't get diagnosed for various reasons until the following June, by which time I was I was on my knees physically. I mean, I couldn't even by that time stand up for more than five minutes on a train, for example, because the exertion of holding my body up used to make me feel like I was going to throw up again. And again, I just used to think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm developing travel sickness as an adult. And <laughs> to sit down on, on this crowded train. But I remember there were times when I'd be desperately trying to open the door of a train and I'd be in between stations. I mean, there was no, there was no logic to it. And I'd have to get off and sit on a bench and then wait for the next train to come through and then continue my journey into work or home. So the fatigue really did snowball towards the diagnosis time.
0: I mean, without spoiling the next part of the story that we're going to talk on, what you came to be diagnosed with is quite a slow growing chronic illness. And for it to get that far shows that there were there's a lot to be done in terms of awareness on both the GP and the public side and some of these symptoms. Would you say that's true from your experience?
1: I think to be fair to the GP, they they would never have thought that it was what it ended up being, which which is hairy cell leukaemia, which I think affects three in every one million people and is even rarer for women than it is men. So to be fair to them, I don't think they would ever have thought that. But I do think that given all the symptoms that I was presenting with, that they should have referred me to the hospital sooner, much sooner, because there, there was just it was it was one thing for me not to join the dots together, but I think they should have been looking at my last few visits and thinking there's that there's a there's a pattern here. But then I suppose in, in hindsight again. I was missing some some of the symptoms and not even reporting them. So for example, I had swollen glands for probably a year before I was diagnosed. I did not once mention that to the GP, to be entirely fair. We used to joke about them like being my little golf balls underneath my ears. And we just used to joke about them at home. And I'd say, oh, look, it's popped up again. Oh, that one's popped up again. And, And then there came a stage when they were just, I just permanently had swollen glands but didn't mention it, because again, because I had them for so long, I just began to accept them, a bit like going grey, <laughs> it's like, this this is just part of, part of me, part of my life, and I also think that you get to a stage where you are so fatigued, that you can't actually think properly, I mean, for me, I got so fatigued, that just getting out of bed, and getting to work, used to stress me, it used to send me into a rage, I was so tired, that The energy that it took to actually get out of bed and get dressed would completely overwhelm me. Then getting on the train and feeling like I was going to be physically sick because I was standing on a train and I couldn't actually, I didn't have the energy to hold my body weight up was just torture. And then I'd get to work and I was up to, I think by the time I was diagnosed, I was up to nine double coffees a day. And I would still reach three o'clock in the afternoon and think, oh, I'm trying really hard not to fall asleep now. I'm really, really. And getting through to the end of my work day, I mean, I'd be talk about clock watching those last two, three hours of the day. I mean, every minute felt like an hour. It was it was torture. And then having to go through the physical thing again of walking to the station and feeling exhausted from that and then stand on a rush hour train again and think oh, I'm probably going to have to get off once or twice because I think that I'm going to be sick with, with the physical exertion so I think the fatigue aspect for me was probably the worst um because it, it eked into every every part of my life and I and I think it's also the most underrated by GPs because they can they can blame it on so many other things yeah
0: I agree I mean I think the the key message is that people should get a blood test at that point. It's quite a simple thing to investigate fatigue. I think is what we is the message we're trying to get out there. Um, so hopefully, hopefully that will be heard by everyone uh, that, that feeling tired is sometimes normal, but definitely not all the time.
1: Do you know what I think as well? I think I think I was presenting with fatigue, and I was presenting with all these things, but then they would look at me and say they would. Classically, always say to me, "But you, you look, you look well." And I'd, I'd sort of sit there and say, "Yeah, um, you know," because I guess you know my head hadn't dropped off my shoulders. I don't know what they were expecting me t- to look like. And then the classic question that I was asked by nearly every GP I ever saw was, "Are you having night sweats?" And I wasn't having night sweats. And then because I would say no, it was almost as if the one question that might have signposted them to have referred me. As soon as I said no, that was it. They were happy that if it was possibly leukaemia, it, it wasn't. And so I think that was, I think when when I look at all of your information that you put out there about the classic and the, the common symptoms that are mainly common to nearly every type of leukaemia, that seems to be one that I, in my experience, GPs latch on to. And, of course, there are so many symptoms, but that one symptom I was being asked about repeatedly saying no and that was it i was i was off the list
0: <laughs> that is the challenge of this the symptoms of leukemia d- is there are so many um i agree yeah hopefully the message really is one of it's two or more of the six symptoms but not necessarily all of them is the key message
1: since i got diagnosed i have found that On certain days, I find I'm quite depressed or I can be quite anxious and the leukaemia has affected us with that quite a bit and it impacts on your daily life quite a lot. I found it quite hard to manage at times when I didn't know what my
0: life expectancy was going to be or what was going to happen next. Sarah-Jane is just one of the people affected by blood cancer to benefit from our Ann Ashley Cancelling Fund. Our grants fund up to six sessions, allowing you to explore the impact of a diagnosis with a professional. To find out more and apply, search Anne Ashley Counselling Fund on our website or call our helpline team on 080 88 010 444. So you were experiencing all those symptoms, fatigue was the worst, um, but then you started sort of having infections and things... And you said you had these repeated blood tests. So how did you go from those sort of repeated blood tests to actually ending up with a diagnosis of leukemia? Then
1: I was given an urgent referral and I didn't hear anything within two weeks. So I chased it up. And with the borough that I live in, they have or they had a referral service, kind of a middleman in between the GP and the hospital. And So when I got in touch with the GP surgery to say I've not heard anything and they said, oh, neither have we, but we can't contact the hospital directly because we have to go through the referral service. So why don't you contact the referral service? Then I had to go through this whole thing of contacting the referral service who couldn't find the referral. So that delayed it for a couple of weeks. Then I went back to the GP and said they can't find it. It's obviously going to miss. And so they re-referred me. And then... um, The hospital got in contact to say that my B12 counts were really, really low. And so they wanted me to have B12 injections before I went um, for an appointment. That in itself caused a problem because you're supposed to have B12 injections every other day for two weeks, but the nurse at my GP surgery wasn't available on Thursdays and Fridays, and they couldn't give me appointments first thing or last thing so in theory it was going to require taking six half days off work to have an injection that took literally two seconds Um, so that was another thing that sort of sent me into a rage because I had no patience I mean I had zero tolerance by this time you know fatigue was everything it was all consuming and the slightest thing just used to set me off (laughs) I had the B12 injections, I read up on them and I read that people in LA have these injections and it gives them loads of energy and makes them feel amazing and I was thinking, well I, I don't feel anything, in fact I think I feel worse. And so I called the GP surgery a few weeks after I'd had them and I'd had a follow-up blood test because I hadn't heard anything. It was always me that was chasing things up and I remember speaking to the receptionist and she said, oh yeah, yeah your, blood, your blood results are fine. And I said, oh, really? And this was in the April. And she said, yeah, everything's fine. And I said, are you sure? Yes, it is. Yes, yes. So I put the phone down and I was at work and I burst into tears. And the guy I share an office with said, well, what, what's the matter? And I said, well, they just said my blood results are fine. And he said, but that's good. That's good. They've been bad. They've been going downhill for months. That's good. And I said, I know it's good but I don't understand because I think I feel worse. And then I said, oh, maybe I don't feel worse, but I definitely don't feel any better. And then I just, I couldn't stop crying because I just, I didn't understand it. So then I just kind of thought, well, that's okay. I feel awful now, but I just have to learn to deal with this. There's nothing wrong with me. My blood results are good for the first time in in a year. I just need to get on with things. And it made me feel like I was a hypochondriac. It made me feel like I was... Just being weird, so I started trying to just adjust to it. I started doing more exercise classes because (laughs) the gym, because my fitness levels were going down. I couldn't even walk up the hill to the station without being out of breath, and I was getting out of breath sooner with with each day that went on. Which I was then thinking, well, if I'm perfectly okay, this must be to do with my fitness. Therefore, I need to do more fitness classes to get my fitness level back so it was really counterintuitive and I was doing completely what I shouldn't have done because of course I didn't have the energy to do these classes and I'd almost collapse after most of them and it was just ridiculous but I just got myself into this thing of thinking well there's nothing there's nothing wrong with me and then I had a letter from the hospital to say you missed your appointment with your consultant in April and I thought I didn't I didn't have a letter (laughs) So by this time it was May and I called up the hospital and I said, well, I didn't get it. Can I have another appointment? They gave me another appointment, which I then had to postpone because of a work thing. But again, I was thinking to myself, I don't really need the appointment because my last blood results were OK. So should I really be taking it or should I just say to them, look, it's OK, I don't need to see the consultant anymore. And so I had this conversation with a friend of mine who had lost her father the previous year to um, liver cancer and... I said to her, I'm, I'm really in two minds whether to take up this appointment or not. I feel like I'm wasting valuable NHS resources and you know, I, I just feel like I'll be blacklisted if I turn up. Yeah. And she said to me, I don't mean to be rude, but there are days, and we would meet up sort of every other week. She said, there are days when I see you and you look awful. And she said, don't take that the wrong way. She said, just sometimes I just look at you and think, what's wrong with you? And I said, oh. Nobody else has said that to me." And she said, "'Yeah, it's not all the time, but some days you you just look like you're dead on your feet." And I said, "'Oh, right, okay.'" She said, "'I think you should take the appointment. And if you take the appointment and you have more bloods done and they say there's nothing wrong with you, great. You're just going to have to get on with things." She said, "'But I think you need the appointment.'" And so I turned up for my first appointment and I remember sitting in the waiting area and think looking at all these people around me and thinking, oh, everybody looks so much worse than me. So everybody else looks so much iller and everybody was so much older than me as well. Because of course, leukemia usually affects the elderly, doesn't it? So I'm sat there thinking, Wow, there's definitely nothing wrong with me. I'm, I'm going to get in so much trouble for this. I'm definitely going to have a black mark against my name. This is it. This is the last time I'm ever going to the GP or a hospital in my life. I'm feeling really guilty now. And so I walked in to see the consultant and he asked me to tell him the background, a bit like I've just taken you through. And I went through it all. And then I said, So I'm really, really sorry that I'm here because obviously my last blood results in April were absolutely fine. And I remember him saying, what, who, who told you they were fine? I said, when I called up the GP surgery after you'd asked the GP to give me the B12 injections, they said they were absolutely fine. And he just turned the screen around to me and he said, I don't know what they were looking at, but there's nothing fine about any of this. I don't understand why, why you're actually sat in front of me. He said, you're ill, look, and everything was red. And I remember just sitting there and thinking, oh, oh my God." I almost didn't come. Um, And then in the next breath, he said to me, we need to take things further. How much do you know about bloods? And I said, well, I've been learning quite a lot in the last year. And he said, well, I want you to become an expert in your blood test results. And I just had a feeling when he said that, that he was kind of signaling that he knew there was something gravely wrong. And he said, right, what's, what's the next step? And I said, <laughs> well, I'm really hoping you don't tell me it's a bone marrow biopsy. And he said, why? Why are you saying that? <laughs> have you had one? <laughs> I said, because I've heard that they hurt. <laughs> and he said, well, not necessarily. And I thought, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> he said, yeah, yes, exactly. And um, he said, well, that, that's what we have to do. We have to find out what's going on inside you. And we're booking you in for one next, next week. So I got booked in for one the following week, and it was horrible. It wasn't painful. It was probably the most uncomfortable thing verging on dropping off the precipice into pain that I've ever experienced, but it it wasn't pleasant. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to the next one. And then they told me that my results would be back within two weeks. But I had a follow-up appointment with my consultant the following week, and so I went by myself the following week because I thought, well, this is just a this is just a checkup. They're just keeping an eye on my bloods now until we get the bone marrow biopsy results. And I walked in and he said, "Oh, where's your other half?" And I said, "Well, he's at work. He, I, I'm just coming to see you, aren't I? We don't get the results till next week." And he said, "No, no, we've, we've already got half of the results." And I said, "Oh, right." And he said, and we've already basically worked out what it is. And he discussed it with, I think, three other hospitals. And so they, I think, I don't know if all hospitals do that, but certainly he said the way they do it with rarer things is that they they discuss them amongst, you know, a number of haematologists from different hospitals just to make sure um, about the diagnosis and about the treatment plan. And so, yeah, I, I, I learned, sat by myself... <laughs> that I had leukemia. I then was told I had to start chemo the following week because I think my bone marrow biopsy came back as I had between 80 and 90% infiltration in my bone marrow, which I always flip it on its head and think, God, that meant I only had 10 to 20% of healthy stuff in my bone marrow, (laughs) which is quite quite a frightening thought. Um, But I also felt a weird sense of relief because I felt like finally something could be done rather than me feeling like I was flailing around just becoming the biggest hypochondriac on earth. I, I finally weirdly felt a sense of relief. And I think that was partly because I really liked the consultant. And he just explained things so clearly and so simply to me. And every week, he'd sort of build on the information that he was giving me so that he never overloaded me with too much, because obviously you don't take in that much in those sort of circumstances. Um, And so I left and I went downstairs to the the hospital pharmacy to get my prescriptions of various drugs, because I was at such high risk of um, neutropenic sepsis and things. I had to go off and get various um, various drugs. And he wasn't sure at that stage whether he even w- would allow me to go for a week on holiday down to Dorset because that might be too far away for comfort and things. But he did end up allowing me to. Um, and so I immediately had to start thinking about what I ate and washing fruit and veg and not eating soft fruit and you know, not using condiments and all that sort of thing. And so I went down to the um, hospital pharmacy and I remember handing over the prescription sheet and the woman said to me, do you pay for your prescriptions? And I th- I was obviously in another sort of, you know, an- on another planet at that stage anyway. And I said to her, "Well, what, what do you mean do I pay for my prescriptions? And she said, do, do you pay for your prescriptions? And I said, well, I, I think so. <laughs> I couldn't, I just didn't know what to say she looked down at my form and she said is that your diagnosis and I said yes and she said no when you've got cancer you don't pay for your prescriptions at which point I just the tears that I'd been holding back just I just I almost collapsed just talking to her and it's been bringing tears to my eyes now talking about it she was amazing she came she said give me a second and she took me to a room um And she sat me down with a cup of tea and she said, look, I'm not a trained counsellor or anything. and But if you just want to sit here and just just talk to me or just sit here and have the cup of tea and cry and just calm yourself, that's absolutely fine. And she stayed with me for about 45 minutes until I felt as if I'd composed myself enough to actually walk out amongst all these people who've just seen me (laughs) start blobbing like a child and get myself home. So that was, that was the day of the diagnosis.
0: Yeah. And it sounds as if since then your relationship with your doctor has been particularly helpful in terms of helping you come to terms with it. it sounds like you've got, you had a good relationship with him. I don't know whether you're still seeing him, but it sounds as if it was helpful.
1: My consultant is fabulous. My relationship with my GP isn't so fabulous. Um, I, I, I don't think the GP dealt with things at all well in the run-up to it. it. Even I was I was angry after the event, and I did actually put in a complaint to them about the fact that they had seen from my blood results that I was severely neutropenic, and yet they didn't ever warn me about neutropenic sepsis. They didn't ever tell me about being careful or anything. Um, so for all those months, I was walking around and I could have got some horrible infection from just a paper cut or anything, and I was I, I was oblivious to it. Um, So irrespective of the fact that the GP didn't know what was wrong with me, they could see that there were certain things I think they should have flagged to me. And since I've been diagnosed, they kind of treat me like a hot potato. I mean, if I go into the GP, they literally just say, right, we'll refer you. And then (laughs) I feel like I'm being booted out of the room, which in a way is a positive thing, because I think once you've had a diagnosis, they're so much more on the ball about referring you for things because there is that slight paranoia that that it could be something else, or it, but there is also definitely a hot potato element to it, where you do slightly feel as if, you know, I went in for um, a sore knee, which I was pretty positive was um, arthritis. Wouldn't even look at my knee. Just wanted to send me for an MRI scan. Was basically chasing me out of the room.
0: <laughs> I think this it makes me think. Does the rarity of the particular type of leukaemia hairy cell, did that change how you felt about it? Or is it a case of you didn't know enough about leukaemia to know it was that rare?
1: I was told the day I was diagnosed how rare it was, my consultant, and he explained to me that he'd probably dealt with four or five of, of me in, in his career. And he said he didn't expect to probably deal with much more that number again until he, he retired. Um, but he made me feel better about the fact that he said that he was liaising with these other hospitals and things. Although a slightly funny twist to it is that when he told me um, the clinical nurse advisor wasn't in the room at the time. And then she walked in and he said, oh, he said, I'm, I've just told Karina what her diagnosis is. And, and she said, oh, right. What is it? And then he said, oh, you don't know, do you? And he turned back to me and he said we've kept it really quiet, he said, because it's actually quite a big deal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, right. <laughs> and then he yeah. told her and then he said to me, that's, that's how rare it is. He said, it's so rare that we've been keeping it kind of under wraps. And I did find it amusing at the time, to be fair to him, because I guess when you look at it from a medical and a science perspective, it's of interest to them, isn't it? But I think the, the rarity of it, It just, it made it harder to sort of understand in a way because there was so little out there. I mean, normally from what I understand, you know, people's consultants are telling them not to look at Google and not to read up on on the internet about things. My consultant said to me, you need to to read as much up on this as you can. And at the time there wasn't that much to read. I mean, I could spend hours Googling it and be coming across the same research articles again and again and again. It seemed as if I would kind of hit a wall with everything. And I think in the last three and a half, four years since I was diagnosed, it's it has kind of increased. But yeah, Google to me was was a was a necessary evil in a way.
0: And did did that make you worry there wouldn't be enough choice in terms of treatment options? Because I think that's part of the challenge with rare diseases is developing enough treatment options. Did it make you concerned because of the rarity that that would be the case?
1: That didn't even come into my thinking at the time, simply because I was given my diagnosis and I was told that I had to start chemo a week later. It didn't actually happen a week later, it happened two weeks later because the pharmacy didn't know what the what the chemo was that I needed and therefore they, hadn't, they didn't approve it and they didn't get it in in time, that kind of thing. And I wasn't, it wasn't so much that there was a discussion about what my treatment would be. Um, my consultant told me the drug that I would be put on and he said it, I'd have it over the course of five weeks That it was normally over the course of five days, but because my neutrophils were so low, he didn't want to bombard my body too drastically um, and risk me getting an infection. So there wasn't a discussion about the treatment plan per se, and there wasn't a discussion about the different types of treatment. To be fair, I was told what it was, but at the time, I think I was happy to be told because I just, I didn't have the energy to have a discussion. And the fact that I think I I already trusted and liked my consultant, I was happy for him to dictate to me. Now that I know a lot more about it, and I know the different treatment options, and I know that Generally for for hairy cell, you can have the type of chemo that I had maybe twice maximum, but then it starts losing its efficacy. So you need to start looking at other things. And now I know a lot more, I think, as and when I relapse, which I don't plan to do for another 20-odd years, by the way, that I will have a discussion with my consultant, that it won't necessarily be him telling me that I will be more engaged um, in that. But the incredible thing about hairy cell leukaemia is the number now that I know of of experts out there, particularly in the States, who are obsessed with the disease. They and they, there are so many people out there putting research into different types of treatment for it. I mean, the number of people and the number of the number of people looking into it and the number of treatments don't really make sense given how many of us have it. But I think the rarity of it seems to pique scientists and medics' interests and if that, if that benefits me going forward, then then great. But I do find it quite incredible that there are so many different Definitely. treatment options now available. Yes,
0: there are. And I guess this kind of links nicely to the volunteering you do in that I'm guessing a sort of peer-to-peer support scheme, which you now support us to deliver, didn't exist at that point or did it just take you a while to come come across it? It didn't exist, I
1: don't think. I don't think it came into being until two two years, or it was, it was done on a trial basis, wasn't it, with CLL to start with. And then it was rolled out generally um, two years after I was diagnosed. So, and I think I heard about it on my Twitter feed. And as soon as I read about it, I thought that's something that I want to get involved in because it just felt to me that it would plug a gap for somebody else that I hadn't been able to plug at the time. And that I, I just felt that was, I, I didn't even know that there was, a, there was a gap that I needed to plug. But as soon as I saw that there was this buddy scheme, I thought that's, that's what I needed. If I'd had that, I think it would have helped me enormously because the loneliness I felt having the diagnosis, and the loneliness was enhanced by the fact that it was a rare disease. So, you know, going off to a Macmillan support group meeting and I was, the only, I was the only blood cancer person in the meeting. I mean, not that I was expecting anybody else to be there with hairy cell, but I was the only person with blood cancer. And so it was a very different take on things. You know, I was, I was trying to come to terms with the fact that I had leukaemia and I had a chronic type, which, which isn't currently curable, but is very treatable. But I was sat in a room with people who had had solid tumour cancers who were obviously aiming towards the kind of magic 5 years to be able to be clear and hopefully for it never to return whereas I was already trying to get myself into the psyche of accepting that I had it and accepting that it was just something that I had to sort of live with a bit like my gray hair you know that you can't you can't fight it it's it's there you've you've just got to manage it as best you can so it was a completely different take on things and I remember going to a couple of those meetings and Coming away and feeling even worse, actually. And then just not finding any support groups that were kind of nearby and things. And then letting it slide, to be honest, because I thought it's just it's just not going to happen. I just need to get on with things. And then obviously as time went on and I was further into my remission and getting on with life and kind of dealing with not being so paranoid about things and, and dealing with the fact that I'd have blood test results back that were normal. Well, i mean because for the first few months i wouldn't believe them i'd kind of read them in disbelief and then all i'd be waiting for was the was the next ones to check that they were still the same <laughs> and yet yeah when, when i think back how how lonely i was and how i would sometimes just sit at home just i just wanted i just wanted and needed somebody to talk to about leukemia generally or things specific to hairy cell or know whether how I was feeling about things was overreacting to think just and things that you can't as supportive as your friends and family and your consultant are they just can't they can't help you with that because they're not they're fortunately not in the same club as you so you know you can you can tell them how you're feeling but they can't give you they can't give you any feedback they can't they can't kind of say to you, don't worry about it. I mean, they can say it, but you don't necessarily take it on board because you're thinking, well, how can you tell me not to worry about that? You don't know how I'm feeling. And I think back and I think maybe if I'd had somebody who I could have bounced these questions and these feelings off against, that it probably would have helped me a lot with that, that loneliness because it was very intense. And it does kind of make me... It, what makes me well up just to think about it, to be honest.
0: I think it is an area that's not well appreciated. People, we talk about survivorship in the cancer charity world, and it's always thought of as a post-curative treatment, this period where people, like you said, are aiming for five years in remission and they get on with their lives. And I think there isn't a, enough recognition of the people who, for whom that's not possible. It's just, it just doesn't work like that because of the nature of their cancer. So I, I agree it needs more, more recognition but uh, I guess this leads us on to you becoming a buddy for us so you spotted this twitter advert and we're looking for people to support other hairy cell patients and you took it on board very kindly I mean do you see when you're supporting you've got three buddies at the moment if I remember rightly do you see them feeling differently as a result of having conversations with you
1: I'd like to think they do. I wouldn't like to presume. Yeah, I'm sure they do. (laughs) Um, They're all at different stages of their, I know some people don't like calling it a journey, I don't really know what else to sort of phrase it, but they're all at different stages of treatment or journey or, or however you want to phrase it. And I have noticed with each of them that there are times when they seem to just want to sort of ask me questions, which I know, and it's not that they say, I, I don't want to you know, put this on my other half or I, I don't know how to speak to anybody else about this, but you just know deep down because they'll say to you, well, how, how did you feel about this? And then I can be quite, I can be quite honest with them. And, you know, I might say, well, I, I, felt, I felt awful at that time, and, but things did get better. And I think that's the other thing with the Buddy Scheme, having, for me, having been there had the treatment, been told I was in remission, and I've come out on the other side. I've got the T-shirt in a way, so I can I can be brutally honest and I can say to them, yeah, no, I felt exactly like you do, or I felt worse, and there's nothing wrong with feeling like that. And, you know, when one of them was coming up to having, his, having chemo and I was saying, look, you know, they're, they'll give you a huge long list of all these side effects of the chemo. You won't have all of them, you'll have some of them, They'll change from week to week. And I said, and the likelihood is, if you're anything like me, because of the rarity of it, they'll have given you this list and you might even have some that aren't on the list. So get ready for that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. That's something that nobody can prepare you for because it's not yeah, on the list. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> but, you know, don't, don't think that it shouldn't be on the list just because it's it, it's not there. And sure enough, they they have had some of the ones that aren't on the list. Um, but yeah, I'd I'd like to think that I've helped them through things and that I mean I've definitely got a lot from it I've got I've got so much from them so if it goes to both ways and I've I didn't go into it for myself obviously I went into it wanting to help other people plug that gap like I say that that there was there was nothing at the time available to help me with but then I think forward and I think well you know as and when I relapse, if I'm in touch with them or if there's somebody else that's buddying with HCL, then at least I know there'll be somebody there for me as well. And it might be that I don't kind of need them because I'll have, you know, learned to deal with, with things over the years and things, but just knowing that the, that the service is there. And it's, it's kind of ironic because when I first signed up to it, I was told, oh, well, you know, it, it might be that we don't find anybody for a while because obviously given what you've, you've got is so rare. <laughs> but in a way, I think I think that makes people almost need the service even more, the rarity of it, because the more kind of mainstream types of leukemia, there are far more of these online support groups and there are far more meeting groups pre, pre-Zoom and everything that were going on all around the country. And so I wonder if with the rarity of it, it kind of enhances the need for it a bit because of that sense of loneliness and because of just not knowing where to look for information and needing the signposting from somebody to say, well, look, so-and-so's got a seminar on or this this particular website has a really good article and things. So, Yeah,
0: yeah I think so. I think that, that my experience with patients is, is- a particular of particular interest to people with a rarer condition where it's harder to do the other sorts of support like you said you sort of talked a little bit about benefits to you but I wondered whether you'd specifically learnt any new skills by being part of the buddy scheme is there so do you feel like you've developed yourself personally as well as sort of just giving something back if that makes sense yeah I
1: think I've I think I've learned a lot emotionally from them, I think. I think when when they're feeling particularly stressed about the symptoms that they're experiencing, or um, the side effects that they've had from chemo, or the after effects that haven't quite been cleared up by chemo, I feel their pain, and it's actually helped me. I think to kind of deal with my own emotions going forwards and things, because when they're talking about things, I will. I can't, there's only so much that you can be objective about when you've been through it yourself. I mean, sometimes when they're talking about specific things, it, it it's like a stake through my heart because it just, it brings back a memory of what I went through in terms of exactly that side effect or exactly that emotion and it brings it all to the surface. And hopefully they never get that from me that I'm kind of, you know, going through anguish at the other end of the phone. But it does mean that when I get off the phone, that quite often I have to then go through my own psyche and, and deal with things that perhaps I thought I'd dealt with and that I haven't completely dealt with. So it's been an incredible help to me in, in ways that I didn't ever expect it to be.
0: Yeah, and if there's anybody sort of wondering out there whether they should do the buddy scheme and they're a bit worried about the effect on themselves, because obviously we're pairing up patients with patients who have all have similar experiences would you encourage them not to let that put them off if you see what I mean not to be too worried about the impact on themselves is it something you can cope with do you have support with it over time
1: I think you have to reach a certain stage to be able to do it so I don't think I could have done this back in when I was told I was in remission in November 17 if the buddy scheme had existed then I think it would have been too early for me because although I was told I was in remission I probably spent the following year still living in a slight state of paranoia like I said not believing the blood test results and just never quite believing that everything was okay I just expected to fall off the precipice at at, at any point and be told that actually oh we we made a mistake or actually you've relapsed already and, and that kind of thing so I think it probably for the following year, I just had to get into the routine of, actually things are okay again, and you have got energy and you haven't got fatigue and you can start enjoying things and planning things and not looking at things as, I used to look at everything as just being a hassle because everything would be so tiring. And, you know, even the nicest of invites, I think, oh, will there be anywhere for me to sit? I mean, if I can't sit down, then I can't be bothered. It was that, it was literally that, that was how I used to think about things. So I think for me, and for probably most people, there's gonna be a period after you're told you're in remission where you just have to start adjusting and it doesn't happen overnight. It's a bit like when I finished chemo and all of my friends and family said, oh, that's brilliant. You must be so pleased you finished chemo. And I thought, well, no, because I don't know if it's worked yet. (laughs) There's one thing finishing in August, but I didn't actually know it worked until November. That was a long period for me to kind of reflect on things. So I think everybody has a time period that they need to kind of get into a groove with. But then once they've found that kind of landing point, that they will benefit so much from becoming a buddy themselves. And like I said, it will will probably unravel a few things in their own psyche that they thought they had dealt with or that they thought they didn't need to even deal with. But that in itself is a is a journey that needs to be done at some point, point. and I think it's I think it's a healthy thing to do to not ignore them or not even realize that those sort of points are there. So, no, I, th- I think I think most people who've been through this would be amazing at being a buddy. I, re- I really do because I just just the experience of it is what sort of makes you a buddy, weirdly. And you you don't go into it necessarily knowing what to do. I mean, we have fantastic training and guidance from you guys, but it's not nothing set in stone. You never know when you get onto a phone call how that phone call is going to be, whether the person on the other end is going to be really unhappy that day or in a lot of pain or a lot of discomfort. You just, you just, you never know what to expect. But the comeback from it is just, it's just amazing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think twice about doing it I really wouldn't
0: it's great to hear and you've had some of these buddies for three years or quite a significant period of time in the very least what are your long term do you have any long-term plans for for them would you like to say, meet them would you like to would you call them friends for example rather than just people you're supporting yeah I would
1: like I'd like to meet each of them at some point I'm just I'm curious to meet the people at the end of the phone whose voices you just get so, so used to. I'd love to meet them at some point. I mean, it's it's a slightly awkward one because you build up this relationship. And then even when I wanted to send them Christmas cards, I was sort of, oh well, you know, am I allowed to do that? And I think the first year I got in touch with leukemia care I said I'd like to send them Christmas cards but I know that I shouldn't be asking for addresses and things so can I send the address can I send the Christmas cards via leukemia care and then you guys forward them on so that happened the first year and then this year I felt that I could actually say to my buddies Or oh, would you mind giving me your address so that I could actually send you a Christmas card but I felt that we'd been talking for long enough that I wasn't kind of pushing the boundaries to ask for that you know because it is a bit of a a personal and and particularly maybe because we we haven't seen each other because it was always on the end end of a phone line. I need to get more into Zoom, don't I?
0: <laughs> it's okay. Sometimes sometimes you just get better for <laughs> yes. seeing your own face day in day out. That's the thing you can't avoid yeah. in Zoom. But, no, that's really lovely to hear. And um, yeah, it, it's nice when people have long term relationships and these sorts of things. It really is lovely to see.
1: Well, I think as well because it's a chronic disease. You just, I mean, you, you hope that each of us will have treatment and then be in remission for years and years and years. I mean, I know there are people out there with hairy cell who've been in remission for 25, 30 years. Um, I know I was told I pro- I'd probably relapse four to five years, I was told. Well, I'm, I'm working on the basis that it's almost it's four years this month since I was diagnosed and there's no way that I'll be relapsing in the next year because I just, I feel too well to and so you hope that that will be the same for your buddies as and when they've had treatment and they come out the other side but obviously there's no guarantee of it for any of us and I'd like to think that even if at some stage they feel that they don't need to speak to me as regularly because they've they've got into a better place and things, I'd like to think that we'll remain friends and that we'll remain there for each other going forward because there's so few of us (laughs) I mean, you know, we we are a rarity, so...
0: Karina, I wonder if I could pose a question to you before we finish. Um, I normally ask if you've got any tips for anyone who's newly diagnosed. I wondered if there's anything you wanted to add beyond what you've already said today in terms of if someone's listening, newly diagnosed with any type of leukaemia, what advice would you give them?
1: To get in touch with leukaemia care, to to be frank, because I think you guys... Are able to signpost people in the right direction in terms of support or buddying or or the online the online questions that can be posed or speaking to a nurse advisor over the phone and things. And I wasn't I I wasn't even aware that Leukemia Care existed for the first six months after I was diagnosed. I knew about Bloodwise now Blood Cancer UK simply because I was given the neutropenic booklet. That was the only booklet I was given. I wasn't given any other booklet, so I didn't know. About anybody else, and I didn't really know who was who to turn to in terms of support. And I think when you're first diagnosed, that's what that's what you need. Um, and I think with blood cancer, from what I understand, it's, it's not it's not offered to you. It's not necessarily signposted to you. And I know that some people will be more reticent to to go out and look for it and things. But I really do think. need it sometimes Um, whether it's in terms of asking practical questions about the management of your chemo or um, the management of your symptoms or just speaking to somebody and bawling your eyes out Um, I really do think that that's incredibly important the science comes later kind of the the interest in your disease and reading up maybe on papers and attending seminars and things and learning about the history of the diagnosis and and the history of the different treatments and things. I mean, I've become fascinated in all of that. But if I'd become fascinated, if I'd had the brain capacity at the time to become fascinated in it, it wouldn't have actually helped me emotionally. It's all about the emotion to start with and just find, finding your feet with it.
0: Definitely, it struck me what you said earlier about plugging a gap that you didn't even know existed, and um, I think your advice hopefully should help people to to plug that gap, even if they don't feel like they need support. Just have a look around and just double check, just in case. Yeah, thank you, Karina, for your time today. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care. Go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk, or call our helpline on 080-88-010-444. See you next month!